0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Shannon O'Neill. Shannon is the Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies, and the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's an expert on Latin America, global trade, U.S.-Mexico relations, corruption, democracy, and immigration. Shannon just published a really interesting book that I've read called The Globalization Myth Why Regions Matter, which chronicles the rise of three main global manufacturing and supply chain hubs in Asia, Europe, and North America, and what this means for US economic competitiveness. Shannon, thanks for being on Building the Future with Dan Rundy today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Dan.
0: You're welcome. So, can you tell us a little bit first about your career? How did you get interested in Latin America? And how'd you end up where you are?
1: Well my career has bounced around a bit, um, but I was always interested in international things and, and the first taste of Latin America I got was after graduating from college. I found my way uh, to an investment banking job that was based in Mexico City. So I spent a few years there. I watched the peso crisis happen. I watched democratization begin to happen. And then I came back, worked in New York uh, throughout Latin America, so got a chance to see it from the private sector side. Then I went back to do my PhD, and while doing you know, the academic side of things, got to live again in Latin America in both Mexico City, also in Buenos Aires. Uh, And then have finally landed after a bit, you know, private sector academia have landed at the Council on Foreign Relations, where I've been for 15 years looking at the policy side of this. So all of it has kept me fascinated by things happening in the Western Hemisphere. And then increasingly, and and with this book over the last four or five years, been looking more at big global trends, uh, and particularly at global trade and supply chains.
0: So why did you write this book? Why did you write the globalization myth, Why Regions matter?
1: You know, this came out of some work I was doing on U.S.-Mexico relations and North America and looking at integration in North America and this part of the hemisphere. And while we have seen a lot of integration and we talk a lot about it and people who follow Mexico and the United States, what I started seeing looking at the data was that other parts of the world had integrated much more than North America had. So yes, we are tied to our neighbors, but Asia is much more tied to each other in terms of trade and foreign direct investment and other kinds of things, as is Europe. So you know, this came out of looking into the data and thinking about these issues. I found two things about globalization that I think today we get wrong in our conventional wisdom about it or the way we, we express it. And the first is that globalization has not been as widespread and as profoundly affecting of the whole world as we often think. And in fact, there's only about two dozen countries that have seen their economies transform with the last 40 years of globalization, really, where they've, they've opened up and, and changed. And there are dozens more who didn't uh, open up, whose trade as a percentage of you know their GDP has not changed, or in fact, it even has declined. So that's one thing that I think we sometimes get wrong in our thinking. The other thing is that, yes, trade has exploded. And yes, money has gone abroad but when it did, it didn't usually go to the other side of the world. Uh, and really what we have seen is when companies go abroad or uh, when money goes abroad, it usually stays closer to home. It goes to countries that are nearby. And so that has really brought over, you combine that not that many countries participating in all of this, and when they do, they go nearby, you end up with these regions that you mentioned at the beginning. You end up with an Asian region, a European region, and a North American one. And for various reasons that I talk about in the book, Asia and Europe have integrated much more than North America. And I think that has really brought them in economic strength over the last few decades.
0: Okay, so you're saying that conventional wisdom of globalization is wrong?
1: Yes, yes, that it's not as widespread. It's not as deep and transforming as we think. And when people have gone abroad, they've gone much closer. They haven't gone global usually, or the, the majority of companies, the majority of money, the majority of trade has been much closer. And, you know, one statistic that brings this home The average good that goes abroad goes 3,000 miles. That is about the same distance as a flight from New York to Los Angeles. That does not get you to Shanghai. Uh, And I think that really tells a bit about this regionalization that's already there in our economy. And I would say, or in the global economy, and I would say actually brings a competitive edge to those that have really leveraged it and have embraced it. And those who have hung back have been left on the margins of a lot of the growth of supply chains and the real prosperity that they have brought to some places.
0: Okay, this is great. Okay, so tell me about what does this mean for the Western Hemisphere? What does this look like for the Western Hemisphere?
1: So of these two dozen or so countries that did open up, there are few in the Western Hemisphere. Mexico is an exception. It's one of those countries that has seen trade as a percent of GDP double. Uh, but you look to South America and almost none of the countries uh, there have really participated. We have seen big increases in in Argentina and Brazil, but because they started with such a small base of trade, they're still some of the most closed economies in the world, even though it has increased somewhat over these last few decades. And what that has done, frankly, I would say, is by not engaging in these supply chains, by not tying yourselves to your neighbors, what's happened to many countries, particularly in South America, but in the Western hemisphere, is you end up on the ends of supply chains. You end up shipping out raw commodities, uh, and then you end up taking back finished goods. But you don't end up as part of the process of the making and the manufacturing and the services and the things that bring more technology, that bring more sophistication, um, that bring know-how and expertise that would allow you to climb the socioeconomic ladder and provide a lot of good jobs. So that, to me, is a challenge where, as I look around the world, who benefited from that? Asian countries benefited, Eastern European and European countries benefited. Mexico benefited somewhat tied to North America but most of the rest of the region has been left on the outside here. And in fact, what South America really suffers from today or their biggest challenge is what economists call premature de-industrialization, where they're only middle-income countries, they haven't gotten to become rich yet, but they're losing their manufacturing sector. And precisely, I would argue, because they're on the ends of these supply chains.
0: Okay, so premature deindustrialization is that like anti-disestablishmentarianism? <laughs> I know it's a real thing. I know it's a real word, and it's a real thing. We've done some stuff on this here several years ago where we looked at, are robots going to take over all the jobs? We looked at this, what's the fourth industrial revolution going to mean for a number of developing countries? And it's a longer conversation, but my my takeaway was, it, the, if you have a super-duper informal economy, not so much. If you've got demography is even a bigger potential disruptor than technology was my other takeaway after interviewing 100 people. You know, there was something else, but it wasn't as terrifying as, you know, you haven't heard as much about the fourth industrial revolution jobs going to take stuff away from folks. You haven't heard that in the last couple of years, maybe because COVID's happened or other things have happened. But I do think this premature deindustrialization is a real thing. It's It's a phenomenon in economics that's talked about and certainly in a lot of countries in in the americas suffer from this and it's part of why they suffer from what's called the middle income trap another one of these concepts right that that's probably related to this so if this is true and i buy what what you're saying what does this mean for the region let's just use the western what does this mean for the western hemisphere and what could the u.s if anything do about this
1: so the western hemisphere with with mexico and north america i would say somewhat aside as an exception has not benefited over these last 30 40 years right they have not embraced globalization they have not been places where they've embraced each other and through regionalization been able to create the economies of scale and specialization and climb the value added ladder the way asia did in fact you know latin america and particularly south america When they trade, they don't trade with each other. Less than 15% of their trade is with their neighbors. So almost everything goes to the outside. Uh, And what does this meant? This has meant that they have grown more slowly. It's meant that they haven't brought in the technology or the managerial expertise or some of the benefits that you see in other places. And they haven't climbed the socioeconomic scale as quickly. Now, right now, because of changes that are happening in the world, I mean, you brought up the issues of automation, which... I think, are happening. It doesn't mean all the jobs disappear. It just means that there's there's technology that goes alongside jobs. So jobs change and in, in sort of what people are doing because of demographic changes in, in Asia and Europe and other places, because of climate change issues and, and the costs of moving things long distance that are increasing, um, because of geopolitics and the divides between the United States and China. Right now, we are seeing a once in a generation fluidity to global supply chain. So many of these got set in the 1990s, and the early 2000s. It was very, you know, it was very set. It was, you know, very efficient. And now they're moving around for all kinds of reasons. And so there's an opportunity here for Latin America. They were left on the outside last time, but right now... You are seeing every board of directors that is from multinationals, they're talking about this at least. Where are we gonna put capacity? Are we gonna move the capacity we have already? And how are we gonna serve our clients? Because our clients are changing as well. Our customers are changing as well. So this is a huge opportunity for those countries that didn't benefit the last time around. Um, But there are things they have to do to, to make that happen. There's stuff that Latin American countries need to do. They need to improve their education system so they have the right workforces for the 21st century. They need to build infrastructure so that logistics costs aren't so expensive because that is a huge benefit that Asia has and other places have that Latin America doesn't. It's quite expensive to move things around. And I would argue they need to integrate with their neighbors because no country, even the United States, but no other country in the Western Hemisphere has the ability for the economies of scale, for the specialization, for the different kinds of labor, for the access to natural resources, access to financing, all of these things. And market depth, market access, they would do much better by coming together, uh, where you can have all those things together, be much more attractive for any companies, whether domestic or international, to come in and put production there. So that is the kinds of things that these countries should be thinking about.
0: So do we need to rethink our trading relations as part of that? So do we need to have a different kind of a trade agreement with, say, a Brazil? Do we need to update existing trading agreements that we currently have in the Western Hemisphere?
1: I do think there's a place for the United States here with this and things the United States can do that not only benefit the Latin American countries, but actually benefit the United States. So if it's in our own self-interest to do this, and particularly what we have seen over the last five to 10 years is a rethinking of the U.S. government role in the economy and a rethinking of what constitutes our national security. And there are many more sectors of the economy, many more products that we see as essential uh, to be produced in places that we trust, that we can get access to them. We have a supply chain report that came out from the Biden administration now 18 months ago. You know, they named four sectors, semiconductors, critical minerals, pharmaceuticals, and large capacity batteries. That's electric vehicle batteries. And now we have a lot of money behind those, right? We have a chips bill that has 50 plus billion dollars to try to bring back uh, semiconductors to the United States. We have uh, another bill that has all kinds of climate incentives there for electric vehicle batteries. The the Inflation Reduction Act. We have an infrastructure bill that can help with a lot of this. But what we're going to find as we try to put this money to work is that to actually make these supply chains secure, it needs to be the whole chain. So it's not just the semiconductor, you know, fab. Um, that makes it, but you need to mine the rare earths. You need to process them. You need to do the packaging and testing on the other end, and you need to do the recycling of semiconductors. You need that whole chain, uh, and that's hard to do in just one place. And we'll also find that if you really want to make these secure, geographic concentration is a vulnerability. It needs to be spread out. And so there I do think natural fit to make them more resilient and more secure for national security, is to reach out to other countries in the Western Hemisphere. So I think there is a possibility here for the United States when we're trying to make our own national security more safe, uh, to safeguard particular industries that we find vital to you know, our security and our day-to-day lives, to make those stronger and more robust by working with Latin American nations uh, to put parts of that supply chain in those countries. So that's, I think, where I'd start. It'd be good for us, and then it'd also be good for them.
0: Okay, so if I said to you, should we be thinking about something like some kind of other kinds of like a hemispheric trade agreement? You'll remember in the 1990s, there was an attempt to do this. It died, I guess, in 2005. You'll remember where this was in Argentina at the Summit of the Americas. when Yes,
1: the FTAA. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Should we try and resuscitate something like that? Should we be thinking about some half measure like a digital trade agreement? that's hemispheric wide, given what you're saying? So one difference
1: I would say for the United States and the Western Hemisphere to other parts of the world is we actually have a good number of free trade agreements with Western Hemisphere countries. We have over 10 different agreements. And and this is actually something somewhat distinctive. One of the Issues for the United States, I would say more generally for economic competitiveness is we don't actually have preferred access to much of the global economy. So the U.S. right now with its free trade agreements has preferred access, so tariff free access and other you know, lower barriers to less than 10 percent of the global GDP. Just in comparison, Canada and Mexico have free trade agreements that gives them preferred access to 60 percent of the global GDP. So we don't have that we don't have that many free trade agreements. But the ones we do have mostly, there's some others, but mostly are in the Western hemisphere. So free trade agreements, while one big overarching free trade agreement would be great for lots of ways, we know politically that's not gonna happen. It won't happen in the United States, but it won't happen in some of these countries. So I wouldn't start there because let's start somewhere where we actually practically, pragmatically can do something and do something that's good for both sides. So we already have free trade agreements with some, but can you build on those? Can you find strategic sectors uh, to build out, to use some of this money and, and this focus of business and industry and governments to build strategic sectors. So those can be the ones that we think are important for national security. I would start there. We can focus on issues, like, as you mentioned, digital issues. Uh, we can focus on you know, telecommunications issues. We can focus on other things that are really going to be the bedrock for 21st century economies, 21st century societies and politics. There, I think we can find agreements and it can be with groups of countries that want to work with the United States. It doesn't have to be the whole hemisphere um, because that's that actually, I think, is a pragmatic way to get things done. So that's where I would start there.
0: Okay, well, this is great. Well, look, I really appreciate the time. This is fantastic, Shannon. Congratulations. This is an amazing accomplishment. I really enjoyed the book. I encourage people to go out and read it. And uh, this has been great. Thanks a lot, Shannon.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Dan.